0: Hello and welcome to the on-call consults and less than 10 Minutes series on ENT in a nutshell, a compliment to Hedmir's online survival guide. I'm your host, Will Dittar, and today we are joined by Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan, a fellowship-trained pediatric otolaryngologist. In this episode, we will cover pediatric failure to extubate. Let's jump right in. Patients fail extubation for a variety of reasons, including upper airway obstruction, pulmonary dysfunction, cardiac defects, respiratory muscle weakness, and neurologic disorders. As otolaryngologists, we may we may not primarily manage intubated pediatric patients, but given that upper airway and laryngeal obstruction are leading causes of failure, pediatric otolaryngology is often involved in the diagnosis and management of these patients. We will begin by discussing the differential diagnosis of failure to extubate, followed by a discussion of airway pathology as our primary focus uh, while keeping in mind that the differential should include a broad range of anatomic and physiologic conditions, many of which can mimic each other. Dr. Balakrishnan, can you give us a differential diagnosis, including some can't-miss diagnoses?
1: Of course. So as you say, Will, many of these conditions can mimic each other, and the classic teaching that inspiratory stridor relates to extrathoracic obstruction and vice versa, for example, does not really apply in many children. Uh, children don't read textbooks. So when we think about the differential, we have to think about the whole patient. Airway pathology obviously is going to be top of our list, and really anything from the nose all the way down to the bronchi can affect children, most commonly laryngeal pathology such as subglottic edema, stenosis, glottic edema or stenosis, granulation, and so on. But otherwise, we have to think about cardiac disease, pulmonary dysfunction, maybe even esophageal disease such as EOE or reflux, neurologic disorders, craniofacial anomalies, neuromuscular disorders, all of these things can do it,
0: as can simple deconditioning. And what are some risk factors that we need to be aware of?
1: So the narrowest part of the pediatric airway is typically the subglottis, and that's a fixed ring of cartilage. So it's very easy to have injury in that area from an endotracheal tube. Otherwise, prematurity, common chromosomal anomalies such as Down syndrome, velocardiofacial charge, or bacterial that may affect the aerodigestive structures or craniofacial skeleton. Are risk factors. Uh, Cardiac anomaly, pulmonary and esophageal disease, hypotonia, prolonged intubation or prolonged sedation, traumatic intubation, history of previous airway surgery, external neck or laryngeal trauma, and caustic ingestion are all important risk factors to think
0: about as you review the patient's history. And can you briefly describe the presentation of these patients? Sure.
1: Overall, the presentation varies quite widely depending on the underlying reason that they are intubated from an otolaryngology perspective, it's really important to ask what happened when the child failed extubation. So you want to think about presenting symptoms like stridor or noisy breathing, increased work of breathing, hypercarbia, lack of cuff leak prior to extubation, concern for recurrent nerve injury, known airway anomalies, or perhaps that you've been consulted for tracheostomy. Newborns may present as immediate respiratory distress at birth and be intubated right away, and that may change your differential as well. And Patients who fail extubation in infancy or in older childhood are often intubated secondary to some other systemic disorder, and that can include all the things we've discussed as well as infection, metabolic derangement, or other surgical
0: procedures. So it really varies widely. So I know it's key to review the electronic records of these patients prior to these consults, but um, also independently to verify the history um, with family. Uh, What history do you focus on?
1: Some key items include the date of the initial intubation, in other words, how long the tube has been in place, the reason for it, the size of tube used, and whether it was cuffed or uncuffed, and how many attempts were taken, and what the laryngeal exposure was like. Otherwise, a broader patient background, including their gestation and pregnancy history, syndromic chromosomal history, known airway pathology, previous surgeries, including cardiac, thoracic, and craniofacial procedures, medical comorbidities, are all key. Their current ventilator requirements and respiratory support requirements are important to understand. And it's also important to understand what their long-term need for ventilatory support will be, because that may guide you to, for instance, consider tracheostomy. You want to take note about current pressors, ECMO, or other non-respiratory support methods, previous extubation attempts, and what happened during those attempts. And specifically, things like work of breathing, Strider and what phase it was, whether inspiratory or expiratory, any respiratory support that was tried before reintubation. You want to know about their cuff leak status, any imaging studies of the chest and neck, and current nutritional status, including how long they've been NPO, as well as their anticoagulation status.
0: And what are some key supplies that you would bring to these consults?
1: Really, the same kind of thing you would use for any sort of airway assessment. So, so appropriate PPE for yourself and any other team members, including mask, eye protection, gloves, and gown, a headlight, a flexible laryngoscope with a monitor tower if you have that available. Uh, There are different sizes of flexible laryngoscopes, so you can choose based on the size of the patient. You may want to consider bringing some oxymetazoline or other nasal decongestant, and then a stethoscope.
0: And can you describe the physical examination? Um, which will obviously likely be of an intubated patient in these uh, consults.
1: Sure. So as you say, they're likely intubated. So you want to note the size of the tube and whether it's nasal or oral and how deep it is. You want to know how much is in the cuff and whether cuff pressures are being tested. Otherwise, you want to look for craniofacial anomalies, size for age and what the patient's weight is. You want to look for particularly the mandible and the oral cavity and the palate, but also the neck to see if there's any anomaly there. Uh, any evidence of trauma or surgical incisions in the chest or neck, Uh, current ventilator settings. Uh, And then if you're going to do a transnasal laryngoscopy, just be aware that secretions and tongue position in the ET tube itself may get in your way, but sometimes it is still possible to get a decent view of the glottis and superglottis to assess those at least.
0: And what diagnostic workup do you order?
1: So it's pretty variable, honestly. Um, But if you're thinking about how to best assess the airway, sometimes a trip to the operating room for rigid or flexible airway endoscopy is going to be useful. That's also useful because you can intervene with dilation, injection, debridement, and so on. Uh, You may want to do that as part of a multidisciplinary aerodigestive evaluation with pulmonology and GI as well. Imaging can be very useful, uh, but it's not really clear which study is best because that's really tailored to the patient, but you want to think about possible explanations anywhere from the skull base to the diaphragm and beyond. So CT neck or chest, MR brain, sometimes CTA of the chest can be useful, uh, really depending on the specifics of the patient. Uh, The other thing to think about is um, if there's any concern that there may be a phrenic nerve injury, then you want to think about diaphragm ultrasound
0: with spontaneous respiration as well. And can you describe the general treatment approach?
1: Sure. So again, the first thing is trying to suss out why this child failed and what happened last time, that'll guide you, but generally, microlaryngoscopy and rigid bronchoscopy can be both diagnostic and therapeutic, depending on the problem. You know, a full discussion of what we might do there is outside the scope of this series, but in general, you need to first identify the level of pathology and then decide how to address it. And that can vary depending on the level of the airway that's involved, whether it's congenital or acquired, static or dynamic, obstruction, and whether overall clinical status improvement is expected in the patient. Uh, For many systemic causes and for some severe localized causes, the final common pathway is tracheostomy. But that's a huge burden to families, both emotionally and financially and logistically. So while the procedure is straightforward, counseling, education, training, and then post-operative management and discharge planning and logistics can be very burdensome and may take weeks to months in some cases. So you really need to work closely with not just the family, but also with the primary medical team, nursing, respiratory th- therapy, social work, case managers, and others to make sure that the child really has the best chance to succeed if they do receive a tracheostomy.
0: Thanks, Dr. Krishnan. So that concludes our episode on pediatric failure to extubate. Thanks for listening.